0: She knew she was dying, and there was this long procession of people she was giving. So in that sense, it wasn't even us holding her pain or us holding her loss. She was working with us even before she died, and she was counseling us and telling us how to move on and how to, you know, what to do and what not to do. And also in a way that didn't take away the pain, right, but it helped that she was not either denying it or, I don't know how old she was, but she was ready.
1: Hello, my friends, Lisa Keefoffer here, creator and host of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast, a show that explores the expansiveness and pervasiveness of grief in our lives. 100% of us experience grief multiple times in our lives, and I'm no exception, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet we are so grief illiterate, and that is causing all of us so much harm. So through my work at Reimagining Grief and this show, I'm on a mission to help us all feel seen and held in our grief. I'm so grateful for the incredible messages and reviews I've been receiving from listeners around the world about the impact this show is making in their lives. I wanted to share one that came in recently because, well, it really touched me. This listener shared, Seven months into grieving my husband of 43 years, and I've been binge listening to GSB. There is so much wisdom in these podcasts. Lisa facilitates the telling of narrative so skillfully. The episode Naming the Loss in particular had me scribbling down so many things I want to explore, like naming the losses, anticipating the next loss that will inevitably happen, the people that show up when you need them, and recognizing joy when it comes. Thanks, Lisa. Well, thanks to you and to all the listeners of this show for listening listening for sharing it with friends and family, and for taking the time to leave a rating and write a review. Oh, my friends, I've been looking forward to bringing you this conversation for a long time. In May of 2021, I had the honor of spending some time in person with my dear friend, John A. Powell. John is an internationally recognized expert in the areas of civil rights, civil liberties, structural racialization, racial identity, fair housing, poverty, and democracy. He's also the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute at UC Berkeley, which is a research institute that brings together scholars, organizers, communicators, and policymakers to identify and eliminate the barriers to an inclusive, just, and sustainable society and to create transformative change to a more equitable nation. In today's episode, John shares so much wisdom about the shared human experiences of loss caused not just by death, but by our unwillingness to see ourselves in one another. And he invites us to discover how the wisdom we gain from having lost might exactly be what we need to discover our way back to each other by expanding the circle of human concern. The organization sponsoring today's episode is so near and dear to my heart. Justice Leaders Collaborative provides workshops, seminars, coaching, and consulting to organizations and individuals like you and me. JLC takes an intersectional approach to social justice because it's their deep belief that all oppression is connected. The team at JLC believes it's our human responsibility to work towards social justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion in all areas of our life and work. Their offerings are meant to lay the foundation necessary for people to take action for justice from a place of love. I've participated in some of their trainings, and they have absolutely transformed the way I see and act in the world. To find out more about Justice Leaders Collaborative, visit their website at www.justiceleaderscollaborative.com and follow them on Instagram and Facebook. I'll also drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. Welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, John. I've been looking forward to this conversation
0: for a long time. It's good to be here. Sorry it took so long.
1: No, not at all. I've learned a lot over the show and I've learned a lot through our friendship. I think I've mentioned to our listeners before that you and I have become friends and I've learned so much from you through our friendship, but also, of course, from your work. And as I've spent these intervening years growing my understanding of the scope of grief and the impact of culture on our grief and in our lives. I just continue to see the parallels to the work that you're doing around othering and belonging. And I've had the chance to just be learning and listening. So I'm sure that will inform our conversation today, not to mention our friendship as well. So I just would love to dive in. I'm going to tell folks a little bit later, you and I met, well, one quick anecdote I want to share before we dive into our usual opening question, which was you and I met at a conference a few years ago, right? You were the keynote speaker. and. Do you recall, I remember us, you know, being in conversation right after and we had a conversation about the power of narrative. Do you remember what drew us to each other? I feel like it was with, within an hour we were already talking about death and grief and dying and loss in life and
0: life. Well, I know for me, at least in part, there's a good friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. And your aura and some of your look was, first when I first saw you, it's like, is that her? Is that her? <laughs> and the answer was no. But you were you, so it was still nice. Uh-huh. So that's, that's what drew me to you. It's like this frame again, I haven't seen in too long. And seeing you in the same aura was just pretty amazing. Yeah.
1: Well, I remember we were talking a little bit because your keynote that day was a little bit about the power of narrative and how we frame things. And I know I've shared with my listeners, and that was one of the things we connected about was the narrative approaches that I've really tried to bring to the work that I do in grief, understanding the impact of how we use language to describe things shape how we experiencing them mm-hmm. and also kind of that separation. I do recall we ended up having drinks and you sharing one of my favorite stories you said to me was around um, a conversation with a young girl when you were in your teens. I don't know if you remember the story about dating and she asked, what were you thinking about? Do you remember that story? Of course I remember. <laughs> Tell our listeners about that. When you shared that, I was like, oh, this he's been thinking on this for a long time.
0: Well, I I don't know. I was probably 14, 15 years old, somewhere in that. Age range and going on semi date, and the young girl woman I was with said, "So, what are you? What are you interested in? What do you like to do?" And I said, "Well, one of my favorite issues is death, crickets, yeah, silence." And it's like, "Well, I think we can go home." <laughs> and some version of that happened many more times, and it not at some point I learned
1: <laughs> maybe not
0: date right, exactly. conversation, not doesn't... the first conversation, first, maybe not. And even now, I find very few people are really comfortable talking about death, but it's probably a little better than it was back then. Yeah.
1: I've definitely, even in the years that I've been doing this work, have noticed some movement. And we're going to talk later, I think, about just why is it so hard for us to talk about hard things? Because, of course, your work on race, sex, death are kind of, you know, the three biggies. But I want to, before you were 14 and 15, I want you to go back to sort of your earliest childhood memories. and. As I've shared with my listeners before, I always like asking people what was their first memory of loss, of grief. It doesn't have to be death loss, but of grief. And in particular, how were the adults in your life modeling grief, sort of explicitly or implicitly? And what do you think that taught you about what grief should or shouldn't look like? And I think of particular interest is your dad's role in the church and, and maybe how that informed what you saw in terms of grief.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because in a way, it's like a lot of big subjects, It's like, what does grief mean? Of course, what does it mean to a kid? And then, of course, you and I have talked about this, and your listeners are probably aware that most memories are made up. You know, so, and I'm aware, you know, so it's like, I think these are real memories, right?
1: Uh, Or there's stories people told me about a time. Right, exactly. But they
0: work now. I mean, and there were some definite breaks in my life, and one of them was when I was nine, and my grandmother died. And it started, I think, a rupture in the world, because. While she was alive, and she was like the patron of the whole family, and my family is very close, and it was even close back then, but different patrons, and it's sort of like, almost like a loss of innocence. It's like the world was magical, it was relatively safe, it was relatively loving, and then she died, right? And all those things went away, and it didn't make sense. And she didn't die a natural death, and she, she lived in the South and didn't get good medical attention. But it wasn't just her death, and it was like then my rupture with obviously her, but also my own family, and in a way, I stopped being a kid. Sort of started on, like, trying to make sense of things. But I also didn't have the language, right? So that time period, 9, 10, 11, and the next several years were pretty formative. So my life was in one trajectory, and then it went to a totally different one. And I think, obviously, you lose someone that important to you, and I just loved it to death, no pun intended, try to make sense of it. Right, and there's a there's a way of making sense of it, and we're sense making animals. Uh, we're constantly we have to trying to make sense for our survival, right? Yeah, yeah, sanity. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a sense making that's given to you by society. Yeah, you know, and of course, and our family is also given to you by the church, and there's also an effort to console. She's in a better place.
1: That idea I talk about often on the show. This impulse we have to sort of hurry away the pain mm-hmm. and to sort of make some meaning so that we can hide away. The experience of pain, not recognizing that the pain is in itself something that helps us grow, heal, evolve,
0: yeah. Well, I think, you know, certainly it can. Yeah. And uh, I've written a chapter called Lessons from Suffering. But some suffering is really debilitating. And some suffering, and part of it is not just the suffering, right? It's, It's our capacity and it's our narratives. It's our community. But I think what I hear you saying is that we're out of kilter, right? It's like no suffering. Yeah, I think we've
1: taken it to, to the extreme. I mean, when you think about the sort of toxic positivity culture that we have, I definitely don't think we need to sit in our pain, but I think all emotions, whether it's joy and delight or heartache and pain and sorrow, help, yeah, there's sort of a biochemistry, there's a you know a balance that help us learn something about ourselves, help us reconnect with our values, how we want to show up in the world for ourselves and others. And when we try to sort of hurry away our own pain or others' pain. I'm talking about, you know, sort of in the days and weeks, not that you're sort of ruminating and and suffering. Then we, I think, it doesn't go away. It just sort of parks itself in our psyche, and our soul in ways that can sometimes be problematic, I think,
0: yeah. Well, I think that's true. And I think part of the thing is, it's not just the failure at the individual level. It's that if we don't have the collective, if we don't have the tools, then all we can do is try to push it away. And then when we turn to others, Because that's what we do when we deal with difficult things. Resiliency is is really a team sport. And so it's like, what do my best friends think about this? And all of us do that. Like, you know, you have a, you get ready to buy a house. You get ready to start a relationship. You get ready to quit a job. Most of us don't go to a therapist. We go to our friends. We go to our family. It's like, well, what do you think? Is This crazy. And if everyone's saying, oh, that's too bad, get away from it. Right. And in a way with, with death, especially, but grief in general, if people are uncomfortable with it and you take it to them, they're not going to sit with it. They're not going to help you sit with it. The whole thing is, let's let's get that off the table. Let's go have a drink. Or let's do something. And I do think, and as I said, the chapter I wrote is called Lessons from Suffering. To have those lessons means we have to be with it. We have to have some familiarity with it other than terror. And again, as a society, I think, um, how can we have a store called Forever 21? I mean, really? <laughs> I was 21, but it wasn't forever.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and, and I do want to come back a little bit to sort of what your father and mother did sort of your family culture, but I this whole broader expansive culture rules about, you know, avoiding pain and people being uncomfortable of course, is the theme of my work. And I know it overlaps with your work of othering belonging because, in fact, when we go to someone and we are in pain and we are looking for compassion or empathy and they are so discomforted by that fact, they shut us down, then we feel further isolated or further othered, to use the language that you use. And it's because, in fact, that person likely hasn't learned to sit with their own pain. So to me, when I think about the work, people often ask me, you know, how do we help people be better grief supporters? And my answer is always, you have to do your own grief work first. If you don't know how to attend and hold space for your own pain, for your, to bear witness to your own hurt, to honor it. Again, not to sit in it or stew it, which I think is people always go to there. You know, they go to the extreme. Like, you got to be buck up and resilient and that stuff. So I'm wondering, as you're, you're sort of world tilted and on its axis, this really important woman in your life. How were your siblings, your parents? What was the sort of, was it keeping her memory alive and talking about her? Was it sort of like, well, that happened, move on, let's talk about what's next? Was there a lot of religious? I know your dad was a minister, right? Growing up, how did people talk about her life, her life in the afterlife? How did you carry her memory forward or not? What did that look like in your family?
0: Well, it's interesting. A couple of things you said. My family, and I've shared this with you before, it's not really organized around the dominant individual principles that dominate most of western society the family really not only sort of um it's not talked about but we we're collective i can give you an example There's something really important would happen in the family and especially when i was older come back to detroit which is where i grew up and i asked my mother or father what what's going on and they would tell me some stuff and then they'd say now go talk to your sister eunice and i go talk to eunice and then now go talk to y- your brother Gary. And the the knowledge, the experience was held all those people collectively. And so in some ways, I think I came to the space of being skeptical of radical individualism very organically. And I think, I don't know, because I didn't grow up in the South, but I think the Black experience in the South, and so even some pains, I think it's hard to distinguish between individual and collective pain. And so on one hand, death was around us. You know, people didn't, Go away to die. They died, you know, at the house. They didn't they didn't even die in the hospitals. They, you know, so I saw death. And my grandmother dying was not the first person that I saw dying, right? She was so much in my life. You know, sort of like, yeah, that person died and that person died, but grandma's still here. I don't know if this works, but it's like trees died and some birds died. What? God died? Oh, man, now we're talking. Yeah, like, like, this this means something to me now. Right, exactly. And it it was like the whole family. But it's also interesting. She knew she was dying, and there's this long procession of people she was giving. So in that sense, it wasn't even us holding her pain or us holding her loss. She was working with us even before she died. And she was counseling us and telling us how to move on and how to, you know, what to do and what not to do. And also, in a way, it helped um, but it didn't take away the pain, right? But it helped that she was not either denying it or struggling. I don't know how old she was, but she was ready. She had some level of acceptance. Yeah, Yeah. and we didn't. I mean, I didn't accept that she was going to die, but she did. And that's been a theme throughout my family. I think I mentioned to you one time, I asked my dad what was sin and what was death, and he said separation. And I think that grief is about separation. And we sometimes say loss. So again, we get conflicting messages in the family. You know, like on one hand, it's like, be strong. On the other hand, it's like people talking increasingly about vulnerability and leaning into our feelings. Uh, again, my parents, and frankly, more my dad, just was like, you know, I used to say, you go to movies and they have the credits when the movie's coming on. He's crying at the credits, right? It's like he had no filterism. And as I got older, not only did I appreciate that, in some ways, I, I valued it. And I was talking to my sister recently, and she was talking about seeing this ad on television which says something like, we can't stop you from growing into your parents, but we can get you a new car, or whatever it was. And she said, I want to grow into my parents. I want to become like my, my mom and dad. You know, we had the jackpot. So part of the loss for me, it's almost like the family took a different shape without my grandmother.
1: And there was new rules to be written, new dynamics to be built. Is that?
0: Is that? Yeah. I mean, it's funny. Like I said, it kept going. There wasn't a rest. Yeah. So my grandmother died when I was nine. And then we moved. And then. Which can
1: be its own loss. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But then I left the church when I was 11, which meant not leaving the building. It meant leaving relationships and leaving my family. Yeah. And I wasn't like a lot of things that are really important. It wasn't a decision. You know, things happen. Yeah, can and you
1: tell the story? I remember you sharing the story of the pivotal moment about asking about what happens to the Chinese people.
0: In the church that my father was a minister and all of us belong to since I was born, they taught that if you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus, I think even in that church, so if you were baptized in another church, it doesn't count, but if you weren't baptized in the name of Jesus, you are going to hell. And I had been reading about Chinese and people from different parts of the world when I was eight or nine. And I knew more, at least through the books, than my community. Real life experience. Right, yeah. exactly. I lived in Detroit. I had never even seen a Chinese. It was an abstract, on that level, of an abstraction. But it came clear to me that there was a lot of them. They weren't Christians. And the suggestion then is therefore they're going to the hell. At my dad's church, Church of Christ, uh, at the end of the service, they would always say, If anyone has any questions, stand up and ask your question. And at this point, I was 11, and I had been in the church since I was born, and it didn't occur to me until later that no one had ever stood up and asked a question. You know, just, it's just like, and so... It's a
1: perfunctory question. A perfunctory yeah. question,
0: right? So I stood up at the end of the service. The minister said, does anyone have it? I stood up, and there was an audible gasp. And the minister, I remember, it was Brother Manuel. He said, that's all right, that's all right. Brother Powell, what is your question? And I said, well, what's going to happen to the Chinese? And there was another audible gasp. I asked, I'll guess, Was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, think, I mean, it, it didn't make sense to people. And I, but I was in that. I was struggling with that question. Yeah. And Brother Manuel, who was actually very gentle and very kind, actually the one I liked, he took me to different parts of the Bible. That was irrelevant to the question. Right.
1: He did not want to answer the question. <laughs> well, I think
0: he didn't know the answer. Yes. Or or, yeah. or or the answer was, they're going to hell. I mean, that was the doctrine. The doctrine was, if you're not baptized in the name of Jesus in this church, you're going to hell. So okay. here have people who are not baptized in the name of Jesus. What's going to happen to them? The answer is there. You know, but he was trying to, he was struggling with it himself, but it wasn't, in a sense, it wasn't fair to him. You know, it was a question out of, you know, not out of left field. It was a question from the parking lot three, three miles away. So he said, at the end he said, well, you know what, just don't worry about it. You know? And I never, I never went back to church. And in my family, if you, someone fell away from going to church, part of the doctrine was you don't have fellowship with them. So, and I had this, you know, even now just incredibly loving family. All of a sudden I was on the edge of the family. So when they would go to church and they would go to church at least twice a week and sometimes more, but on Sunday all the kids would pile into the car and they'd go off to church. You get up in the morning and you, the whole ritual of get taking your, a bath, right?
1: And get your suit on. Right. And you have you know, clothes.
0: um, you know, six of nines, so all the kids would one bathroom. You know, I mean it's like a real ritual, right? And what I would get at that point was a list of chores. It's like so, you know, wash the bathroom floor and you know, wash the dishes. Every Sunday I got a list of chores. And basically the church doctrine was uh, the family, but especially my dad, should not have fellowship, which means not to have conversation that was unnecessary. So for the next five years, from 11 to 16, in the sense, i lost most of my family. And my siblings were sympathetic, but they couldn't understand it. It was like, why don't you just... Why are you
1: drawing this line? Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Why don't you just give in? Why don't you just come back to the church? Why don't you... And when I left the church, or was excommunicated in a way, initially I thought, because I believed that I meant I was going to hell too. So it wasn't something I could celebrate in. It's like, you know, 11-year-old kid with this imagination of what hell is like, and that's where I'm going, right? But I could not go back to the church that embraced the doctrine that a billion people who never had a chance were all going to go to hell. At least we we just say these long conversations with God, you know, it's like, you know, I know I'm not a saint. I know I do a lot of, you know, crazy and sinful stuff, but on this one, this is not about me. By the time I got 16, I no longer really believed, and I was starting to become a man and start to a different journey in terms of trying to find meaning in different places.
1: When we come back, John explores the sense of loss and othering that happened as he left the church and the rupture that caused in his family. He also paints a fuller narrative of the ways his intellect, curiosity, and calling to exploring belonging further separated him for a time from those around him. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my guest, John Powell. so fascinating because fast forward, you know, 50, 60 years, of course, your work is all about expanding circle of human concern and your work on belonging, which feels like started as an 11-year-old on that day in the church. One thing we haven't talked about you and I before, but I'm curious if you're willing to share a little bit, you, you really just described a whole nother level of loss where everybody in your life was still present and alive and with you. And I know you've talked about your dad who you say radiates love and goodness and your parents' love is kind of something out of a storybook. So when you look back at your 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old self, were you naming it as loss at that time? How did you grapple with the fact that you were in the physical presence of all of these people you admired and loved but felt this disconnect from? Or did you feel disconnected even though they there weren't? There
0: was definitely a loss. I don't know if I had named it, yeah. but it definitely was a loss then. And so one of the things I did was start looking for other connections since you know i do think we're basically social animals and also and the connections were sometimes in people but i was also a person who processed some stuff to the cognitive process reading a lot i started reading existentialism i started reading about life and death i started reading about meaning now of course uh now 11 12 13 year old black kid in detroit you know there's, there's not many people checking out books yeah, exactly on
1: existentialism
0: <laughs> there, there are not many people to talk to about that so i became friends with a there's a family that was close to my family, and the husband was estranged. He and I became close friends. He was in college, and he at some point committed suicide. And that was not only another loss, but it scared the family because, like, they didn't understand what I was going through. They didn't understand, you know, they would have understood if I was stealing a bicycle or skipping school. It was like,
1: like why are you taking this stand? Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: It just made no sense to them at all. And then you're hanging out with this older man. Why? And then he kills himself. And so from them, from their perspective, it's like, that's the path I was on. And so they were scared. And Did they
1: articulate that to you at the time, do you think? or
0: I think so. And I think, I mean, it's more like a warning, right? It's like, you got to stop with all this crazy stuff. Now, they didn't say, I'm scared. But it was clear about that time, maybe 15 or 16. And I had enough awareness to know that they were. But I didn't fully appreciate their struggle until much later in life. I mean I was aware of my own pain and my own loss if you will but it it just tore their heart to lose their son yeah right and
1: especially given how close you all were i mean you described your family as as a big collective
0: too yeah it was it was worse than that because before i left the church so two things i used to actually right. deliver sermons in the church and they were so proud of me right it's like this 10 year old kid could actually read the Bible, and then spend together a sermon that had people spellbound. And so it's like, yes, here's our next minister, Prodigy. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it was even because of so much was invested in that, the loss was even greater. Do you think your dad saw
1: you as the next him? I mean, do you think he...
0: I think it's more complicated because my dad's mom died when he was 11. So, and this was in the South. My parents were both sharecroppers in the South. And my dad had to drop out of school. So he only finished the third grade, and it's not something he was pleased with. But he had to go to work because he had to provide for the family, and he was the oldest of many children. And he worked ever since. Right? So On one level, he was pushed out of school, pushed out of this institution. Had to. So he never quite knew it, but he knew it was a loss. He knew in some ways because he, his childhood ended when he was eleven. He became a man. So,
1: as did yours, by the way, when you exactly. left the church.
0: Well, and, and even more poignantly, when I'm eleven. You know, in my family, there was corporal punishment, and I remember I was taking my dad's suit to the cleaners, and I I think I had a wagon or something. But anyway, I got distracted, and I left it in a wagon and went up and did something, and someone took it. And, you know, we didn't have much money, so it was a big deal. So I come back, and my dad is like, what happened? I told him. at this point, I'm 11 years old. And he says, go get the belt. And I said, no. He said, what do you mean, no? And so here's another part of the backstory I should have said first is that, so I'm 11 years old, I'm living in Detroit, I have shoes with holes in them. And I go to my dad and I said, can I have money to re-sew the shoes? Put a new sole on the bottom of the shoes. He says, no. So say, you're a man. You take care of your own needs. So I got a job when I was 11. So now fast forward back to the yeah. suit. My dad says, go get a belt. And I said, no. He said, what do you mean, no? I said, I'm a man now. I said. If there's something wrong, we talk about it. And he said, okay.
1: No way. And that's how it was ever after that? Yeah. So how did those intervening years, we're going to fast forward, of course, to some of these other topics, but I'm so interested in this. You know, one of the things you and I have been talking about recently is all the ways in which we experience disconnection or othering or loss that are not related to death losses. Because I think those are the things as a practicing therapist, for sure, I saw over the years, people were struggling with things because they didn't have language to name it. And as you and I have talked so much about naming something and finding language helps us get at meaning a little bit more. But there you were becoming a man already at 11, but 16, you sort of felt the family came back together. Was there a moment where you felt the sort of reconnecting with the family or did it just sort of happen over time? Because then you went off across the country to college, you know? So
0: it did happen, but much later. So when I was 16, it wasn't that we came back together. When I was 16, it was that there was no yearning for okay. that place of when I was 11. Okay, You know, it's like, I am a man now in, in many ways. And it's like, I didn't need the kind of support and approval from my family that I needed when I was 11. Okay, So that freed me up in some sense. And they weren't happy with that. I mean, they were still struggling. And they continued to struggle. And then later, I had children, too, and never got married. And that was another struggle. I mean, they were just, I was like literally pushing them toward a nervous breakdown. I came back from college once in the summer. I was up in my room, and my mom comes up, and she says, you know, it's the beginning of the summer, so I was supposed to be there the whole summer. And she says, I think you should leave. Why? She said, it's too much for your dad. I think you're driving your dad to a nervous breakdown. And I said, okay. She left and went downstairs. Because
1: of your political opinions, your cult, like what do
0: you well, think? Well, so here's the other part of yeah. the story. I'm packing up my stuff, getting ready to leave. My dad comes up to the room. He says, John, I said, yeah, yes, dad. I think you should leave. You're driving your mom to a nervous breakdown. <laughs> so they're protecting each other from me, right? Um, and I think... Our, our ways of being, at least at that level, was so antithetical to each other. And I was just a grating on every nerve. And there were a lot of things. You know, This part of the early stages of the Black Power Movement. I was affiliated with the Panthers. I had an Afro. You know, and I've, I never lied to my parents. So, and I, I tried to do a thing where I either don't say something or tell the truth. So my parents, when I wanted to talk to me one time, they said, why do you sound so funny? Because I'm high. <laughs> <It's> like, oh, <laughs> why wouldn't I sound funny?
1: <laughs> and of course, they came from such a different world growing up. I mean, they were high school sweet, or not high school, right? They were yeah. teenage sweethearts. They grew right. up as sharecroppers in the South. So right. now you've gone off to Stanford, coming back high and talking about the Black Panther movement. and
0: Right. And not all the things that, that made sense to them, I was not embracing. Yeah, And it's just hard, you know? So when we did get back together, it was when I, when I was older, I had kids and Like I said, I was not married. And my parents, my family, but especially my parents, just love, love, love kids. Um, My mother used to say, kids are gifts from God. I mean, it's just, and it wasn't just words. With nine children, each child felt that they were the favorite. Each child felt like they were the most loved. It's like, well, you know, Frida think it's her, but no, I know it's really me. (laughs) And again, it's sort of in yeah. retrospect to pull that off. How did they do that, right? It's really quite spectacular. Exactly, yeah. right? Yeah. So now we have now we have our own children. Right. And we go back to Detroit to visit. And my mom and dad said, you and your partner can't sleep in the same bedroom because it's a sin. And I said, you know, maybe a sin. This is my family. And I said, well, this is our house and these are our rules. And I said, that's fine. I respect that. We've already seen this show before. I said, I'll just go stay with one of my siblings or in a hotel. And again, that was just torture for them. Not for me, but to not be around their grandchildren. And, and we would talk about it. And my mom would write these letters. And God, this—you and, and, the know, Bible says that. And I said, you know, I'm not, the Bible is no longer my reference. So one day I get a letter from my mom. And she says, you know what? You say you're not married. But I can see the way you are with your partner and the kids. You're more married in the eyes of God than most people. So now you can come stay with us. And that was the healing and ever since then
1: that's amazing. she decided that she was going to make new meaning, even though the circumstances of the world didn't actually change
0: well i but I think deciding yeah. is too deliberate that's right
1: that is too deliberate, but she really felt in her heart she felt called to seeing you yeah. and your relationship
0: and they' done that light. they did that a number of times. I mean it was interesting because in a way like one way of thinking about it is that now they have the sun back, yeah, you know, and they still didn't understand what I did and why I did it and why i wasn't. You know, like when I graduated from high school, getting ready to graduate from high school before I graduated, the principal of a high school had been former whatever, like a captain or some officer in the military. So, you know, the school was 50-50, 50% 50 white, 50% black, and a few Asians. And the black students all were tracked away from college prep. So throughout my high school, when I was 50% black, I almost never had another black male in my class. And the school was struggling with this because they were racist, essentially. They didn't think black students should do well or could do well. And I was doing well. And it's like it's a contradiction. And so the principal was like, well, okay, he's doing well. Okay, Well, we, you know what? I'm going to help him get a scholarship to a military a military academy. And I said, no. He said, what do you mean no? I'm not going to the military. What do you mean you're not going to the military? And my, my older brothers. some of the youngest four boys, they all had gone. And that was a proud event in their life. And family had pride in. And it's like, we're fighting these, you know, imperialist wars all over. It's like, I'm not doing... It's like, what? And some people say, so why were you rebelling? It's like, I was not rebelling. This is who I was and still am,
1: right? So much of what you're talking about now, I see through line to the John that
0: I know now, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, and I was a little more full of piss and vinegar than I am now. I mean,
1: as (laughs) are most (laughs) 17-year-old boys. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, But again, when I look back, I think of all the losses they were experiencing, you know? So they, when they finally got me back, they started sort of seeing the world in a different way and seeing me in a different way. They were so happy and loved and the love then just, like 20 years of love just came pouring out, right? And they were stopped.
1: Well, yeah, because i in all the conversations we've had, this is an interesting aspect of your time of your life that I don't think I've ever heard in our conversations before because every time you've talked to me about it's Marshall, right? And Floresy, you say that they've, you know, sort of walk in the world radiating love. And so this is really interesting that they had all of that held up and sort of kept up for all those years and then has been...
0: Right. I and mean, in conflict with their deep faith. And they were real Christians in the best sense of the word. I mean, they were not hypocrites. It wasn't, wasn't just how they live their life on Sunday or Wednesday right. or Friday. It's they like how they live their life. They And all the time. Yeah, and... and you know, when growing up, I thought my dad was a chump because he was—he would do anything for anyone. Uh, sometimes people would say they would pay him, and then they would not half the time. And He kept doing it. It's like I, I would see people take advantage of him, and instead of getting bitter or getting even, he just would roll with it and do it again. And it's like, what is wrong with this man, right? And as I got older, it's like, wow, such a beautiful soul. Yeah, such a beautiful soul. And he could find
1: beauty or find love even in those kind of.
0: Moments, Yeah. You know, my mom died 20 years before my dad's son. But my view of them, but especially him, is that at some point in his life, he discovered not just love, but also peace. He was deeply at peace with himself and with his faith and with God, and he radiated. He was just, and it's not that he had an easy life. If I described his life to you, it would sound like... A horrible movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he had experienced extreme racism got mistreated, had fingers cut off. I mean, just once he was working on a furnace in Detroit and the furnace blew up and it singed all the hair in his body, and we drove around for hours trying to find a hospital that would take him. So he had a
1: lot of... He could have turned in to be a very bitter soul. Yeah, yeah,
0: but not not even a hint. And again, as I got older, someone I was younger, I'd see this, It would be like, you know, you need to fight back. And it wasn't my grandfather. I remember him saying when I was in college, he said you better leave those white people alone. They don't play. So there was that fear. The family would go back south and it wouldn't take me because I felt like I didn't know how to act. But again, as I've I've grown older, it's like my sister said, it's like growing into my dad, I'm all right with that.
1: This is all right. Well, you know, as you're describing your dad and his sort of inner peace with he knew, you know, he just sort of had a love and a peace and how he was showing up in the world. And that really informed everything he did, his acts of service, his father, the way he fathered all of his relationships, even though you've stayed all these years, not, you know, organizing yourself around formal religion and not having faith in that way. I see that in how you show up in the world. You are very clear. I mean, you were starting at 11, but all the way through the through line, all the way to today is you have a really clear sense of what you value. I mean, and then that shows up in your work and your personal lives too. So even just in those stories, I see that same kind of certainty and that peace. You radiate peace and love too, for sure.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, two things. One, you know, my mom's story of you're married. My father actually had his own version of that. So at one point, literally he said to me, you know, you keep saying you're not a Christian, but John, you're more Christ-like than anyone I know. And it was basically saying, in a sense, I was learning to see him at a deeper level and he was learning to see me at a deeper level. And just to give an example of that, came home and there was some political campaign going on, some some issue. Uh, and it could have been around abortion or it could have been around homosexuality. But my dad and I were diametrically opposed to each other on that. And we started a conversation and we ended up talking all night. And the next morning, got up sleepy and tired. I came downstairs and my mom was beaming. And she said, what did your and Marshall talk about last night? He was so happy this morning. And what had happened is that we had spent the entire night not trying to convince each other but trying to see each other trying to understand each other held in a just a deep respect and love and after that because I even then was doing a lot of public speaking for the next 2 years I wouldn't debate I felt like it was the wrong structure for really understanding and certainly for seeing other people and the fact that he would do that the fact that and it was hard for him because he didn't have in a sense, the facility to, other than the Bible, right? He didn't read, you know, so. so he
1: didn't have other narratives or other yeah, ways of understanding and he probably wasn't maybe traveling, so he wasn't hearing no, he other worldviews.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and yet yeah, he was trying, he was trying. I That's mean, remarkable. at one point, you know, because I lived in India and started sitting on meditation, like made no sense to him, but he asked me to teach him to meditate, not because he wanted to meditate, but he wanted to connect to me.
1: Well, this is this belonging. I mean, yeah. this is this connection and that interaction that you just described between you and your dad, where you were in conversation as opposed to debate. But to me, it sort of resonated to this practice I'm always talking about, which is how we hold space and bear witness for each other in ways that, that has no objective of correction or coercion or fixing, or as you said, you know, convincing someone to the other side. But I think the only way we feel held. In our pain and our joy and our beliefs and our whatever, is if we can have that practice of. I mean, to me, that's what you're describing there. And that you know,
0: there's that expression that I am because you are. That if we, if no one sees us, if no one, a South African word is sabawanu, If no one, as you say, bear bear witness to us, it's not clear that we have a self. And that's what happens a lot in this country. And unfortunately, it happens in an organized way. Right when we deny. People's lives, when we deny people's stories, when we deny people. It's like, I don't see you. I don't recognize you as a full, complicated human being. Yeah. You know, you're In, all, are in all of
1: our multiplicity of ourselves. That's right. That's yeah.
0: right. Yeah. And that's to me, to, speaking of grief, it's like saying, I can only recognize a mutilated version of yourself. And too many people are put in the position of, if you're going to keep this job, if you're going to stay in this neighborhood, if you're going to stay in this family, you have to show up mutilated. That's so
1: profoundly true. And that's really at the heart of the work that I've been doing all along. And obviously it's very connected to your othering and belonging, which is our institutions, our systems, our family systems all live in this obsessive, binary, dualistic way of asking us to be in the world and don't understand that it is in our sort of full complexity that we show up in relation with each other. And I think the You know, as I saw over my career in foster care adoption and public housing and family services, all the work that I've done, including the work I do with grief, so much of the real suffering that I saw from people, yes, were, of course, acts that happened, sexual assault survivors or kids who had been abused in foster care, but it was about the denial of some or multiple aspects of themselves. And I think that's what happens in our broader culture, in our sort of, you know, dysfunctional grief culture is when people feel pain or don't have the capacity to be seen because it's been too long let's say you know even if it's an approved kind of grief like for instance when my husband died you know there was a period where I was allowed to be a mess and then there was a period when I wasn't allowed to be a mess anymore and then I had to sort of hide those aspects of myself but of course we see so many people not being able to show up in their full selves that have nothing to do with a death loss whether it's around race or around sexuality or gender identity or or even the kind of losses that we choose when we, we
0: we move places. Or I feel that way. I mean, in many ways, doing a sitting practice, but just life—it's about, in part, being able to hold the complexity. You know, and I'm not passive about life. I, I have values. I want the earth, the people, to grow and thrive, and I work hard for that. But as you know, there's joy, there's suffering, there's sorrow, there's pain, there's celebration, there's love. It's like all of it's there. And so, part of to me about having a good life is like again when I look at my dad, it wasn't that he didn't have pain; he had his body was racked with pain, but he never complained, and he and still sometimes, found
1: joy so much. Oh
0: yeah, you know, and he talked to him and say, you know, how's your pain today? And he said, well, you know, John is, um, every day is painful, but he didn't turn it into something twisted. He didn't push it away. So, the mutilation, I think, belonging—we need to actually belong to each other, but belong to ourselves. Our many selves, and some of those selves don't necessarily fit together well. It's not an easy process. There are parts of myself that it's like, oh, I'm not, you know, I don't like that so much. But it's there, you know. It doesn't need me to like it.
1: And and it's fluid too. I think mm-hmm. we get stuck in this rigid idea, not just that we are sort of forced in lots of different ways, culturally, in workplaces and systems, to choose between different aspects of ourselves. But I think we we do that to ourselves too. We feel we should hold on to certain aspects that once served us in a way and no longer serve us anymore right. or got us attention or got us in, you know, approval in places. And, and so we, I think in some ways, have absorbed those mm-hmm. ideas about,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, picking, pick one.
0: Right, exactly. And a- anyone you pick is the wrong one. It's
1: the wrong one, <laughs> depending on which room you walk into. Yeah. I want to make sure that we talk more about how you see this work, informing the work you're doing at UC Berkeley's um, Othering and Belonging Institute. But one place I wanted to explore with you is, so you talked about, you know, you sort of left the church. That church had an idea about what happens to us after death, and that really helped inform how people maybe experienced grief, of course, in your family. When we come back... John explores what he's learned about the powerful forces of othering and belonging from his work, not just in the United States, but across continents. He reminds us that above all else, our most fundamental human need is belonging. This translates to the central theme of his work, expanding the circle of human concern. One of the many shared beliefs that brought John and I together as friends is this central notion of belonging. At the heart of my work as a grief guide is the practice of holding space and bearing witness to the individual griever who often feels cast out and isolated as a result of the loss they've endured and our cultural tendency to hurry people through their grief. If you're someone who is looking for support as you navigate grief, I'd be honored to be your guide. You can learn more by visiting www.reimagininggrief.com Forward slash support. I know you spent some time you just were sharing in India, but I know you spent some time in Mozambique, is that right? For many years. When you think about other faiths that you've witnessed either because you've lived in different places, what has that taught you? What have you learned about how different cultures, communities organize themselves around what it means to grieve and loss? And is that informed anything about how you show up in your own grief?
0: Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. And, and I feel it's interesting to me because I think of the United States in particular, but also the West. It says the grief is there because the loss is in the culture itself. So it's, you don't have to think of death as my dad did in terms of separation. The whole culture is based on separation. It doesn't mean that there can't be compounded grief, but the culture is a grieving culture, not a grieving culture because we're not. Because we actually don't, it. yeah, it's exactly. not grief,
1: we've just, we are built on loss. Right, exactly. Because of the separation, because of individualism.
0: Exactly. So we're not conscious of it, but it's, it's, it's you know, Freud's thing of, you know, the return of the repressed is there, but we can't name it. And it comes out sideways and crooked. And, and then we even have things like, you know, be a man, you know. Okay, what does that mean? Yeah, it's like, so vulnerability, grieving would be considered not being a man. You know, don't be a sissy. You know, why are you crying, you know? And I think that's so profoundly
1: important, what you just said, because if in the very fabric of our culture, of our ways in which we don't even name, because it's not said explicitly in our growing up life, we are built on loss, but then we don't name it, then we are feeling this disconnection from ourselves, from each other, and we can't name why that is, which leads us to these, yeah.
0: And, and just disconnected from each other, disconnected from ourselves, disconnect from the planet from the earth, it's just like, it's just, there's so much loss, there's so much, and sometimes you see it, right, you see a kid, sort of going through that, where he or she or they, it's like, they're happy and connecting, or not happy in an insipid way, but then at some point, it gets shut down, you know, and, uh, and oftentimes before, the words, right, so it's hard to get it back, because it's like, it's hard to remember, when we felt connected, it's hard to remember, when we could play, it's like, you know, I have friends who are gay and they talk about liking boys, liking ribbons and blue and, you know, thinking of people like Andrew Solomon in his book. It's like, no, you can't like that, you know. And he writes about this, so I'm not outing him. But he's, you know, he's 50 plus, you know, and he's struggling with depression. And, you know, you don't know, but it's like he suggests suggested the very early time when he's a little kid and just wanted to have that blue balloon. And his mother, whom he loved dearly, saying, that's not who you are. Yeah. That's not who you
1: are. Talk about like, rep- you know, so then he had to shut off this part of his multiple selves.
0: Right. If you want to belong in this family, yeah. get rid of that self. Which was named the
1: opposite of loss. Like, it's like he experienced a loss internally, sort of psychically, emotionally, probably, existentially, but what he was being told by the world is you're coming back into the fold. You're, right, exactly. You're a boy. You so, know, you're a true boy. So that's the U.S. culture that you...
0: So different societies do it differently, but... Everybody does something, right? I mean, because we need to belong. And sometimes, going back to James Baldwin, he talks the price of the ticket. What does it cost to belong? There was a program officer at Ford, who I think she was, I may get twisted, but she was Muslim, her husband was Hindu, living in India. They had to leave. You know, the community's like, no. You know, that's, I mean, it's, it's our version of miscegenation. You know, you can't love someone of a different religion. And the, the, the threats... The threats and the violence, literally, violence was so intense, they had to leave their home. And I've been reading Edward Said, a book called No Place. And he talks about growing up in the Middle East, I think mainly in mainland Egypt. His mother, I think, was Palestinian, and his father was American. So his father wanted him to have a good, strong British-American name, Edward, Right. So as a kid in Egypt, he's constantly being teased for having this name. Edward, what kind of name is that? You know, And he's a kid. He, you know, he wants to belong. Everybody wants to belong. And so then when he's adolescent, 11 years old, 12 years old, this family moves to New York. He's no longer Edward. Now he's Saeed. So now he's teased for being Saeed. And so he's saying there's no place I belong." You know, and you, see, you know, and I met him a couple of times, just a profoundly beautiful, deep writer. But then when you read about his, No Place is an autobiographic, when you read about the pain of not belonging in either place, so no place do I belong. Or when someone asked James Baldwin, when Margaret Mead asked James Baldwin, so where do you belong? He said, no place. He, yes, he could live in France, he could live in England, he could live in the United States, but no place did he belong. And we do it on different dimensions. You know, he was, as you know, invited to a fancy literary club and they said, but don't remind us, Mr. Baldwin, that you're black or that you're gay. And it's like he left the country after that, brokenhearted. You know, again, mutilate yourself and maybe, maybe you can belong. You can
1: belong, except there isn't any of you there. or Exactly, exactly. And I,
0: you know, spent time in England and people would literally, this is, you know, hopefully it's better now, but they'd say, you don't know your place. I said, "You're exactly right." I don't mind. Every place is my place, but they're saying, "No." As a young black kid, your place is here, right? We're consigning you a place, and if you leave that place, all hell's to pay. So, you know, that was England, and and then you think about, you know, I sp- I spent time in France and and liked the country a lot until a friend of mine was not Muslim, but people thought he was Muslim. He was from Iran, and he got sick, and he couldn't get medical care. I mean, they just treated, they basically killed him. And he was French, you know, and it's, it's, that was his language, that was his country. But he, as far as they're concerned, he was not French. And I was talking to another French friend of mine, and when there's some uprising in in the, the ghettos, um, suburbs of France, and he would say, he was. They would say, where are you from? He was black. He'd say, Paris. No, no. Where are you from from? Yeah. Where, where's your father from? Paris. Where, no, 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 no. Like, you know, you can't be can't from France. It, yeah. You know, you're not French. Uh, so, yes, you know, you see it. And and then I was in India. One of my favorite stories is like living there. And people say, so what religion are you? And I said, well, I'm, I'm not really religious. Wait, no, you have to be religious. I said, I'm not. No no, 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 no! What religion are you? This is not computer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I say, well, I guess I would say I'm agnostic. Oh, the religion of agnostics! <laughs> but they couldn't relate. They couldn't. It made no sense to them until I fit in one of their boxes, right? Yeah. And and then literally, I'm there in India, and people are coming up to me saying, "Tell me about racism in the United States." In the meantime. The D are being treated as subhumans, and people don't even see them. And so, these—I mean, really middle-class liberal friends—tell me about the racism in the United States. Sound terrible? As if this is not happening it's in like, our own country, what about? Yeah, you, know, you know, the millions and millions of people you call untouchable. Oh, that's religion. That's you know, that's just the way it is. It's always been that way, you know. And they can be born, and maybe they'll be reincarnated in a higher caste but it was it was it was no critical reflection at all it was natural
1: two things you were saying there that reflect maybe back to our earlier conversation one is our sort of constant need to sort of categorize and make sense of something it's like i can only understand it if it's in relation to categories or groups that i have but also all of those experiences um of course were othering but also were that antithesis of the conversation you and your dad had. It was like they couldn't hold space for some other reality that they didn't get, but also honor that you had some different way of orienting yourself in the world or seeing your position in the world. Yeah.
0: I think that's right. And in a sense, worse than that, because I'm a visitor, right? It's like in the day I'm going to go back, I'm going to leave India, and after a year or two, I'm going to leave France. But for the people who've been living there for hundreds of years, thousands of years in some case, and to be told, this is your place. This is the only place you can actually, yes, you don't belong. And I mean, I've seen it all over. Literally, I was in South Africa before apartheid ended. And I'm walking down the street, literally walking down the street, and a white person who's reading walks into me. And then it's like, why didn't you get out of the way? Because the, the streets belong to us. And as a black person, you have to get out of the way. I was in Botswana staying with a progressive white family. They had black servants from Botswana. And the cook came out and said, I'm not cooking for you. She's black. So I'm not cooking for you. You're uppity. You think you're as good as the white people. This is her saying this to me. And I said, okay, fine. I'll cook for myself. You cannot go in my kitchen. <laughs> I said, you know what? You got to work it out because I'm going to eat. <laughs>
1: right, exactly. You're not getting
0: between me and right, this dinner. Right, And I know it was a struggle for yeah. you because I don't yeah. fit. You know, a black person at that time, this was, you know, in the 70s, yeah. was not, it was inconceivable. I was carrying airs. Talk about
1: that culture. So even though she was already in this othered category in her own country, she had sort of absorbed that way of thinking and was right. othering
0: you. And well, that happens all the time. Yeah, of that, course, I, of I course. mean, I was in Nigeria. And they offered me a job and I'd been there, you know, whatever, doing work and they liked the work. And I said, no, I think I'm going to go back to the United States. And I said, why? You know, you're doing a great job. We love you. We'll give you money. We'll give you a house. We'll give you servants. And I said, no, I'm, I'm going to go back. I said, why? Why? You know, the way you treat girls, the way you treat women, you treat them as if they are not of equal value to boys and men. And I have a daughter. And the women, these were educated women, said, but it's true, girls are not. As valuable as boys.
1: That internalizing, which is a whole nother conversation, right? Yeah, that implicit internalizing bias. So, John, I'm going to pivot a little bit in our conversation, though I think obviously the threads are already there, which is how do you see when you think about all of these, really you're talking about these chasms, these breaks that we have sort of within our multiple selves, of course, between each other when we think about the institutions that have been built in this country around, obviously, stealing of indigenous lands, around slavery, all the ways in which we've othered, you know, even capitalism, of course, white supremacy, everything is on this sort of separation. Your sort of declaration early on was clearly in, you know, that 11-year-old boy was, to me, as I see it anyways, the beginning of your idea of how are you going to be in service of naming this thing, of how are you going to use your work to bring belonging to everybody's naming it in everybody's imagination because that's sort of what is our calling basically as humans. But also, I know you've talked more recently about expanding that even to the way we think about our relationship with the planet. You practiced law. You've done lots of other things in your career. When did you begin to name or understand this division of othering and this call for belonging was central? Did you have a time in your career where is that already a part of the work you were doing even as a practicing attorney and other work? When when did this sort of concept of othering and belonging come?
0: I think the, you know, you asked earlier about stories, and one of the things we tend to do is that when we look at our lives and over the the long arc, we think there's a through line, and maybe there is, but oftentimes it's not. It's sort of like, so when I was playing marbles in Detroit at four, I was thinking of othering and no, belonging. No, of course right? not. Right. <laughs> no, we make meaning, right? right we have exactly. all these
1: experiences, and then we right. then we draw the constellation of all the stars. And
0: yeah. yet it's not entirely wrong, right? It's like, you know, someone picks up a chessboard. and become, Anyway, so I think it's almost the opposite. It's almost that we experience, we're born in the world connected to another human being. So we don't have to learn to be connected. We are connected physically, spiritually, emotionally. We have to learn the illusion of disconnectedness. So when you watch, you know, kids, people tell these stories like, you know, I had a white person, I said, I had a a black friend I used to play with and I brought him home and my, my dad said, get that boy out of here. It's like, the kid didn't actually feel that there's, any, there's anything special about this other kid, right? It was the parents that are saying, you're in this family, you're not allowed to do X, right? So we're teaching a disconnection. And I think we have multiple impulses and like anything, once you go past one, it becomes incredibly complicated and nuanced and dynamic. So we're not set in our othering any more than, you know, we're still evolving animals. You know, the tribes that existed a million years ago, they're gone. People are organizing themselves into thousands and millions of people with new stories. Harari talks about the sapien. Tribes were 50 people. There are 2 billion Christians, 1.6 billion Muslim, billion Muslims. How is that a tribe? So it's interesting, one of the things we've organized ourselves into larger and larger clunks of people, right? And we in a sense have to, because the mountains that used to be an effective way to keep us apart from each other, they don't do that job anymore.
1: I mean, Uh, we are literally one world.
0: Well, The world's getting smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. And I think it's almost like a race in time. It's like, as the world continues to get smaller, do we recognize our interconnectedness? Do we live our interconnectedness? Do we create institutions to celebrate interconnectedness? So think about this. We're coming out of a pandemic.
1: Which, by the way, if nothing showed you interconnectedness... That's
0: exactly my point. And so here's this little bitty virus that says, and we do all the things that we think we can do, right? It's like, shut down the airports, you know, close the border, you know, seal the wall. Hmm, it still get in. <laughs> you know, it's like, how is it traveling? It travels from, largely we think, from person to person. And, and it says, when, when they announced that there was this virus in Hunan, in, I think it was November or December, my first impulse was, the world needs to prepare. Instead, it was like, lock it down. And so it was was impossible to effectively separate ourselves from the 7 billion people living on the planet with all of our technology, right? Instead, we should have been talking about, hey, look how interconnected we are. What is our collective response? and we're still doing that. It's like, well, okay, we're getting rid of the virus in the United States. Yay. Right. It's like popping uh, up in India. It's like it pops up in, up in India. So like, okay, we're gonna let, not going to let the Indians in. Right. Good luck with that. So I think that part of it is just the realization that we we live on multiple planes, but we are profoundly profoundly connected. You know, Maslow says it's the third basic human need. His students say no, it's the first. It's the first human need because Maslow says food physical safety, and belonging. And say, no, we don't get food or safety without belonging. It's first. But the stories we tell, the institutions we build, can make it hard to actually live out that belonging. And for me, you know, you see it expressed all the time. People are always trying to create space of belonging. But most of the time, they do it in the sense of, I belong, you don't. And so what we are bringing to the table is like. I belong, you do. Everybody belongs. And it's, it's fascinating when you think about it. Sometimes I have my students read the second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. It sounds like, okay, that, what does that have to do with grief? What does that have to do with belonging? What does it, it says something to this effect. We hold these truths self-evident that all men, should have been people, are created equal. What does that mean? Self-evident, we don't have to prove it. It's given that everyone is of equal value. Now we don't live that out. Of course not, right. But it's a powerful, because you go back 200 years before then, the whole world, not, not Britain or not France, not India, the whole world is structured around the concept of natural hierarchy, that some people are worth less than others. The whole world, 200 years before the Declaration of Independence, the whole world believes that there are groups of people, women. People who were enslaved, people who were different, even people within one's country. There were kings and queens who were considered the descendants of gods, not the serfs. It's the whole world. So within 200 years, we're now saying it's self evident that everybody's equal. That's amazing. That's a
1: major shift. Yeah. Even as you said, of course, it was flawed and you know, came from somewhere, but it was moving towards this understanding. That belonging. And it came from, you know, the white people from England feeling the disconnection of the being othered. And then, of course, then recreated all of that here. But
0: only again. one interesting footnote they weren't white people when they left England. Right, they only became exactly. white people, which is interesting because if we recognize that, we have to be careful to make sure that we don't read it as inevitable, read it as biological, read it as it's, it's, this is, we're doing stuff. We're telling stories about. When i saying stories, it doesn't mean we can now just stop, right? Because these stories, get we live in these stories.
1: The stories have now made their way into institutions and right. systems. And, exactly. and,
0: and in our own psyche, right? Yeah. That's the way they actually affect the way we experience yeah. the world. Yeah. So they're quite powerful. So sometimes when we call them stories, people think, well, you know, it's a story. Right? <laughs> right, it's, right. But it's something much, much more. We, well, we're meaning-making creatures through our stories, And we can knowledge. make more meaning, right? And we're called upon yeah. to make more meaning two examples. First of all, virtually every nation state, when it first became a nation state, the people in that state were not the people of that nation. So when France became France, most of the people living on the land didn't consider themselves French and didn't speak the language French. They were made into being French. It wasn't like, oh, these are French people. No, no, no. (laughs) You know, uh, it's kind of interesting when you think about, think about the United States. So here's, you know, whatever, a bunch of guys say, okay, this is not working out with England. Let's make our own country. You ever made a country? No, but, uh, you know, look at how they did it over there. Well, they have a king. We don't want a king. That was a bad thing, having a king. So let's get rid of a king. But the audacity to say we are going to make our own country with our own laws, with our own people, with our, we should be doing that all the time. Making our new country, making a new world, making a world where belonging thrives. Uh, And we can do that. There's nothing, in fact, we have to do that. One of the ways that we fully belong, one of the ways that we fully express ourselves is to fully express ourselves in relationship with others. In
1: all of our multiple selves, yeah. And so as you continue to refine or think about the work that you're doing through the Institute, and and I know you work, uh, of course, beyond the Institute, I've heard you say often about sort of expanding the circle of human concern, which is also this practice of renaming Right, that's like how we are, and then how we're bringing in not just the hu- humans, but of course our Earth. I know you don't orient around hope, so I'm not going to ask you what makes you hopeful. Ever. <laughs> I'm not falling for that one, John. But I also know about you that you are passionate about this work. So something must intrigue you about our capacity to continue to expand our sense of this broader circle of human concern. What's what are you seeing in the work that you're doing, or in the work other people are doing to help us understand our full humanity, and I would just say in the context of this show of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, is I think, of course, the lessening of our disconnection, of our isolation, of the suffering of our grief, because grief isn't inherently, of course, I think is a very normal response to loss. But to me, the work that I'm doing at Reimagining Grief is trying to cut away or make more visible all the ways in which we suffer unnecessarily in our grief. So I think one of the reasons we I was drawn to you in our early conversation a few years ago when you were talking even about expanding the circle of human concern is I see the ways in which that allows us to hold space and bear witness for the multiplicity of ourselves, of our global selves.
0: Well, you're right. I mean, you know, one of the chapters in my book is called uh, Lessons from Suffering. And when I do, what I do in there is look at a number of the major religions and almost every one of them, their origin stories is about suffering, right? But it's not suffering, and I went to a different country and got a nice house, and it was over, it's like, there are lessons there. There are things to be learned. There, there, it's a teacher if we're willing to be taught. And many of them, of course, are expensive. So think about this. I mean, and there are different readings of it. I, I grew up at least first, for the first... Eleven,
1: ten and a half yeah, years. <laughs> as, as
0: in a Christian theology. A radical reading of Christian theology is Jesus saying, everyone, Everyone, which had never been said before, at least that we that we know of, that everyone is a child of God. Now think about this: he, He's Jewish, the chosen people. Saying, "Well, you know, <laughs> you know, we're all chosen. We all belong. We all belong." And I said to people, "So who was the Caesar or whatever of Rome when Jesus was crucified? No one knows. Time Rome was a big." country, a big army, a big imperialist force, but no one knows the emperor. Everyone knows Jesus. And what was Jesus' message? Everyone belongs. And there's one thing, love thy neighbor as thyself. There's one commandment that's above all others. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love, right? Now, again, we're not doing it but that's what's being put out. And, and, and people start doing stuff around that. People start organizing. At one point, the largest country in the world was the church, right? And it got it became an institution and started doing all kinds of stuff that we all can talk about. But there's still something there. It, it resonated with people.
1: Which really is, in essence, this belonging, right? Exactly. Which is different than assimilation or being all the same, which I know we've talked about. And of course, that's a lot of the work that you've done in your legal career. But
0: yeah. Love is almost the opposite of assimilation. Uh, assimilation is not, is not only terroristic, and it's also incredibly narcissistic. Well,
1: and it's denying again. It's making people deny aspects right. of their multiple selves.
0: I like you because you're me. Right. You know, you, you, you eat your food, and you talk, and you walk, and you dress just you, like, me. like me. Great. You must be great. Yeah, you must be great. Whereas in, in my mind, love is the capacity to recognize things in themselves
1: and still hold value, hold, right. hold light there. Yeah,
0: You don't have to be me. You know, in fact, if you're not me, you actually help different parts of me express themselves. Uh, I'm not afraid of your being different. Yeah, uh, I'm not. That's why for me, when my dad was willing to go sit down and try to meditate, not because he was interested in Buddhism or Hinduism, because he's interested in me. He wanted to that's see That's an expression of me. Life. That's exactly a powerful expression of me. Yeah, yeah.
1: Again, I'm not going to try to to, for you to close the show on this idea of hope, but we've just been through, well, the pandemic and before that four years of in some ways in this country, although we've seen it in different iterations, again, from our founding of being very separated and we're coming out of a political time where there was more othering, more extremism, more disconnection than ever. How is coming out of that time, coming out of the pandemic as we are right now, is it shaping how you see the messaging around belonging and how you carry that through the work that
0: you're doing. So a lot of the stuff, as you know, study the brain and the oldest part of the brain is the reptilian part of the brain. And that's where, by most accounts, fear actually hangs out and is activated.
1: Our nervous systems are in full activation.
0: Right. And a lot of evolutionary biologists say that fear is older than love, right? So it's easy to activate. And then we don't know how to turn it off. Exactly. So... What's happening in the world today is people are in a heightened state of fear all over the world, and it's not going to go away. But then, if we are very, whatever, skillful. Intentional. And intentional. It's not to say fear is going to go away, but it's like it can be directed. It can be, there are different stories about it, right? And love, if you tell a good story, again, not just a story, a good practice, there are many stories, right? There's not any one story. So this lasts 18 months. We've had insurrection on January 6th. We had white supremacists, we had Charlottesville, we had people being shot in the church. We also had the largest multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-sector demonstration in the world by a factor of probably 10 that we've ever had. We had generals, we had police chiefs, we had CEOs of companies, we had nuns marching for racial justice all over the world. Those things are happening at the same time. So what
1: stories are we holding up? What stories are we telling?
0: So yes, maybe Shakespeare was right. These are the best of times and the worst of times. But we have to remember, they're not just the worst of times.
1: And the stories that we hold up, this comes back to, you know, I do a lot of work around mindfulness and nervous system work in my support of people in grief. And I've been thinking about this a lot as we come out of the pandemic, is the stories then that we hold up and tell over and over again, if it's the stories of this multiracial, multiethnic you know, power of 10 number of people coming out, then feeds information to our brain, then then feeds something different can either shut down, you know, sort of the heightened fear sense, which, by the way, when our fear is activated, we have no executive functioning. So all of our critical thinking and our planning and all the things that help us maybe see a different version of the world are shut off. And so what's happening when we keep elevating the stories, not that we need to hide, of course, we need to make visible, you know, the tragic things, the horrible things, the racist things that are happening, we can't do it alone. Otherwise, we are reinforcing this.
0: And, and it's never just that.
1: It's back to the non-binary, non-dualistic right. way of seeing the world.
0: A writer has written, we're not sure if this darkness is a tomb, enshrined in death, or if it's a womb giving birth. We're not sure. And I would say, it's not figuring out what's the right answer. It's, are we going to be merchants of death or are we going to be midwives? That's up to us.
1: And that's back to that intentionality of how do you organize your day-to-day lives? How do you organize your thinking and your work, not just your work, mm-hmm. John's mm-hmm. work, but all of our work. That's how do we organize the stories that we tell ourselves to the stories we tell each other and how that orients, how we show up in the world, holding space and bearing witness one on one to the people in our lives and
0: And you know, my friend Bill Hook says, Love is everything. I mean, all of us have been, I think hopefully in touch with just the power of love. And it again, it, you know, it doesn't have to be Romantic, I mean, romantic we co You know, and it does mean there's a video going around of this mother is at the zoo with her newborn baby. And this gorilla comes out and sees the baby. And the gorilla is like on the other side of the glass, but the gorilla is so incredibly enamored of the baby and like trying to stroke the baby. And people are going, oh, it's incredibly beautiful. And then the gorilla leaves and go gets her baby and brings it out to meet now, call it what you will, but it looks like empathy and love. If a gorilla can love a human, why can't a human love a human? Right. And yes, we have to love the gorilla too. So, you know, I think we sometimes get the cynical story carries the day, but there are all these positive stories. There's the Christmas Day truth, and people may not know the story, but the, it's World War I, and the Germans and the French are like half a mile apart in trenches, and they've been stuck there for two months killing each other. And then somebody comes up with the idea that it comes, it's cold, it's dirty, it's wet, and people are dying. And someone comes up with the idea that Christmas is about to happen. Can we have a truce? And it lasts a day and another day and another day. And finally, the soldier says, could we just keep doing this? And it goes past New Year's. And the captains and officers says, no, we got to get back to killing each other. And at least how the story goes, there's only one corporal who was really pissed off at the idea that we interrupted killing each other. His name was Adolf Hitler. But these people, literally, these are soldiers trained to kill each other. And it took so little for them to actually share in each other's humanity. And then when the war is finally over, the story goes that they found each other.
1: Again, this calling to our shared humanity, yeah. to showing up in relation with each other to seeing each other's Even, again, not understanding, you know, you're fighting for the French, I'm fighting for the German. I don't have to understand you, but I can know, I can see your humanity and be.
0: And one other example of that is this, in the Korean War, there's this marksman who had killed all these people. He was like one of the most famous marksmen for the United States in the war. And he has another person in his sight. This person apparently realized he's about to be killed by the marksman. He starts running a North Korean He's running away from the marksman. The marksman taking aim. He's about to pull the trigger, and the guy's pants fall down. The guy who's running away, his pants fall down. The marksman cannot pull the trigger. He comes back to his base and tells them what happens, and they say, "Well, you know, whatever that, you know, you let this guy get away, okay." But next time, and the marksman says, "There's no next time. I cannot kill another human being." He saw the humanity in yeah. that man in that moment. Yeah, he yeah. wasn't. He didn't read a bunch of books, right? <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that's interesting you say that because, of course, you do this work sort of at the larger scale with the Institute. But I think one of the things that we always think, all of us as individuals, was is how do we, and I think about this in my work all the time, like how do we show up in our small home communities and our one-on-one day-to-day relationships and hold space and bear witness and see the shared, you know, see the humanity in somebody else. And those are not that we can't, we of course have to change at the institutional level, but When you have collections of people. or And I think we're seeing that in this country, as you said, with groups of people.
0: Right. There's a South African word, I think I mentioned it earlier, called sabawanu, which means, one interpretation of it is, that the God in me sees the God in you. But there's another riff on that. That if the God in me fails to see the God in you, then I fail to see the God in me. So I'm not doing this for some abstract human being. I'm doing it for humanity, including my own. Yeah. This is, you know, so again back to we don't have to necessarily although these structures we might have to do some work. We have to I think in many ways we do a lot of we've done a lot of work in terms of teaching hate. The elites have actually benefited from people hating each other. The rank and file soldiers was willing to stop. It was the captains uh, who were saying, No, we must continue the wars <laughs> like, okay. to
1: uphold the systems yeah, that exactly, they were. Injured, exactly.
0: Yeah. And you know, there are all these examples of people trying to and right now we have these two different narratives. This narratives of a larger we, uh, where we can learn to love each other, care about each other, and care for the earth, and the smaller we that everybody's a threat who doesn't look like you, who has a different name, a different race, a different accent. We
1: do. We treat the planet in the same way. And exactly. any attempt to sort of integrate. Or change our own ways with the planet too. But again, even those two narratives make it be a binary. That Mm -hmm. there's this, we have to completely flip. Although I do think we do have to pretty much dismantle most of the (laughs) systems that we have. But I think even in those stories that Mm -hmm. we have, that there's some, that it's an all or nothing, zero-sum game.
0: And to your point and to this podcast, people get attached to things. So even when you remove the monuments, they're going to be people who... White supremacists who are going to grieve the loss of monuments. And I say, yeah, you know, I'm not saying don't remove the monuments, but I'm saying realizing that people are going to grieve because they have their identities tied up in that. And when you remove something that's important for identity, there's grief.
1: I think that's what's happening. Of course, it happens as we've grown over time. I mean, through all of human existence. But I feel there's been an acceleration as we are when we think about gender identity, when we think about racial changes, when we think about the political movements that are happening right now. To your point, there is so much that we are asking ourselves and others to let go of, shed our beliefs, our identities. Again, for good reasons, because many of those beliefs are tied up in denying other people's humanity. I think we make a mistake when we don't name exactly what you just named, which is to honor that even those beliefs that harm other people, those people are grieving. That's right. Because also that activates their fear response, which then triggers right. new behaviors. That-
0: well, that's right. I mean, I talk about that you can't expect people to actually experience the ontological death. You can't say, we're getting rid of you and you're kind, right? I don't care who the people are. And so it may be appropriate, it may be necessary to say, we're getting rid of this, but there's a place for you in this new world. You belong in this new world. In fact, you need to help us create this new world. We don't do that.
1: Right. Again, very binary. We try to sort of sever. Right. And say, we're done. We're done with these. Yeah, that work. I mean, that comes back to this expanded circle of human concern that you talk about so often. And
0: So I know we're wrapping up. We're getting close to it. But Eric Schulman just was recently found guilty of several counts of murder and manslaughter and the killing of George Floyd.
1: As, as we're recording we're just about at the anniversary of that
0: yeah and Keith Ellison the Attorney General in Minnesota Keith Ellison is a friend of mine I've known him for many years he's African American and he's on national television and they're saying Attorney General Ellison you put together this great legal team you had justice served you must feel great Keith's response was I don't know if justice was served we made a small step in terms of addressing a huge problem I wouldn't say justice was served announcer, Okay, I'm corrected, but you still must feel great, you know. I mean, you've, you've done something that's pretty amazing. And he says, "Well, you know, I don't know if I feel great. It had to be done. It was the right thing." And then he said, "But I still feel a little bad for Derek Chauvin." And the announcer's like, "What? This guy killed a black man, being video seen by millions, if not billions, of people around the earth. He's a racist. He's why would you feel and?" Keith said he needs to go to jail but he's still a human being and the announcer was struggling with that it's like how how come you holding on to his humanity and holding on to someone's humanity doesn't mean you're going to give him a gun and or know, a proof of behavior exactly, or, or yeah exactly but he's still a human being and we don't have many we don't have enough examples of that behavior the that yeah
1: well, that I, I know you, I've heard you say that before, especially in the era of Trump. It's like, how do we expand the human concern even for those people that we disagree with, which is part of the, our healing
0: work? So, Someone yeah. said, in my world, I would still acknowledge Trump's humanity. He just wouldn't be president.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Again, it's because people, I think, try to get us to do that binary thing that that we can't disapprove of behavior or not have people in relation with ourselves in a day-to-day life, and acknowledge their humanity.
0: And it happens, I mean, will tell you one last story. I was at the University of Minnesota. I was only black on the faculty at the law school there. The conservatives, there were a number of conservatives who were struggling with me. There's one conservative in particular was trying to do everything he can to make life difficult for me, and not just me personally, but for what he saw as people of color and critical race theory and all that. And I tend to be somewhat prolific in my writing. And anyway, so this, this particular professor, who defined himself as my staunch enemy, he, the school was considering a new rule. He had tenure, and they were considering a new rule that if you hadn't published an X number of years, even if you had tenure, you would be in some way demoted. Or, and this guy had been there, I don't know, 20 years. And he clearly would have been one of the targets. And so the faculty was all embroiled in this. And I took the position that, first of all, he's been here 20 years, you can't change the rules after 20 years, it's just not right. And so I took the position that no, I took the position against changing the rules, recognizing that in some ways I'm advocating on this guy's behalf, and we won. He comes up afterwards and he says, I don't get it. He said, you know, basically we've never been friends. Why would you support me? Why would you support this position? I said it's the right thing to do. And after that, we were, you know, we didn't go drinking together, we became friends. And and in a sense, he was saying, You still care about me as a human being, even though I've been basically treating you like dirt for six or seven years. You showed
1: him that you saw his humanity. And even in that act, he was able to see yours. Yeah. 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 That's a powerful story, John. What an incredible gift it is to have you in my life, of course, as a friend, but also to have you on the show today on Grief as a Sneaky Bitch. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your love and your light and your family with us. I really appreciate you being here.
0: Thanks for having me. Thanks for your show. Thanks.
1: I'm so deeply grateful to John for allowing me to bring our offline conversations online for this very special episode. As you heard, John thinks deeply and works actively to help expand our understanding of what it means to be human, how we might show up and bear witness for one another in our pain, in our grief, even when we don't understand it. And in that way, he is inviting us all to expand the circle of human concern. I want to thank Giles Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today. And I want to thank that team over at Studio Pod for helping me produce it. As we close the show, I'd love to ask you a quick favor. As I mentioned, I love hearing from listeners of the show. So after this, please head to Apple Podcasts, find the show Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, leave a rating and write a review. It would mean the world to me. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch with my incredible guest and friend, John Powell. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, and I'm holding you in my heart.